Katya, can you imagine what is the most promising thing in terms of uh, cancer care nowadays in the hospitals? Hmm, I'm not sure. I guess the research is always going forward, so there's bound to be something interesting cooking. So let's find out at today's episode. Yes, let's do that. The science Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Eleana. And I'm your co-host, Katja. And to honor the International Cancer Day on the 4th of February, we will be working with ICANN on this podcast mini-series about cancer and where cancer research is going. ICANN is an exciting new research opening in Helsinki, a national flagship project aiming for discoveries of new cancer treatments. In today's episode, we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Annina Farkila, who is a gynecologist and principal investigator at the Research Programme for System Oncology at the University of Helsinki in Finland. Being an expert in clinical cancer therapy and translational research, Anina joins us today to share knowledge on personalized cancer care. Hi, Anina. Welcome. Hello, and thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you for joining us. Perhaps the best question to kickstart this episode is this. As we already mentioned, you are a gynecologist. So based on your hospital experience with patients, what are the different types of gynecological cancer you encountered in the clinic? Yes, so that's a that's a great question. So um, I'm a gynecologist, and we treat gynecological cancers, and we have many different ki- kinds of cancers um, in women of different ages. Uh, there are uh, cervical cancer patients that are usually quite young, which is which is very sad, and then we have some cancers like ovarian cancer or endometrial cancer that are more in the elderly uh, patients. But I, I have to say that each cancer and each patient is really unique. So the patient age and the tumors and, and the types of cancer and also the treatment options are really unique and vary a lot between patients. So that has to be, has to be remembered and taken into account in all situations. So I imagine that's where the term personalized cancer care comes in, um, and which is the topic we address in this episode. So uh, why is it uh, necessary and needed in cancer treatment? Because you mentioned now that uh, you have individual types of tumors, uh, different people, different ages, and I understand that there are different needs in treating them. But uh, so what are the like ground-based uh, needs uh, for this personalized cancer care? Yeah. So, so it is a, a very necessary and very critical that we understand uh, both the patient and the tumor, and we try to optimize the treatment for both. So we try to basically kill the cancer and not kill the patient because many of the treatments are very toxic. And so we need to optimize and adjust the treatments uh, so that in an ideal situation, there is a death of the cancer cells and and you know, good health for, for the patient. And then, so this is something that we, we struggle with and we re, we work with every day in the clinics. And this is also one of the key phenomena, I think, in cancer research over the last, you know, decade or so that we really try to 
target the treatments, the cancer treatments, so that they only kill the cancer cells and don't do no harm or, or don't affect the normal cells or the patient. Yeah. So that's, I think that's the key. So it's really interesting that you say that this has become more commonplace in the last decade or so. Um, would you say there's kind of been an acceleration in the past few years or has this very much been the trend all along? Uh, I think it, it has been a trend for a long time, but now that our understanding of the tumors and also the methods to investigate the tumors have significantly improved, I would say, in the last decade. And also they have come more affordable. For example, genomic analysis has been crazily expensive like 20 years ago, and it was not feasible to test cancers and different tumors in the clinics. And, and I guess also the, the funding and the resources for research to even learn and understand the tumors has become more affordable and, and feasible. So as the knowledge increases, we can better and better uh, personalize the treatment. So if I understand right now, with the technology advancing and with the resources becoming more and more available, more funding provided for the research, this has helped the different methods to be applied to more and more people in, in the clinics. But what are the things that determine the kind of personalized care? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess it goes down to, to kind of two things, as I, as I mentioned. So there's, a, there's first to consider is the patient. Like we need to consider and, and discuss together with the patient the goals of treatment, the, the life situation and the current health of the patient, what treatments uh, we can plan, what, what treatments will be beneficial and what and treatments the patient can handle. And the second thing is, of course, the tumor, how far uh, the tumor has spread, what are the tumor characteristics in more detail, what does the pathology say about the tumor, and then um, go also to, to literature and find out what is the prognosis of the tumor. These are the, these are the things that are, have been applied for, for decades already, but now I guess there's a new era uh, opening because research has shown that these genetic factors can affect the treatments. And more and more, uh, we are finding new things about the tumors that can affect the treatment. Yeah, genetic testing is al already uh, kind of main main mainstream where, where it all began, because we learned that certain genetic changes result into sensitivity to different, different therapies. Nowadays, uh, there has been more and more research also on different biomarkers, which can be, they come in a variety of flavors. There can be many, many different kinds of biomarkers, typically from the tumor, which, which can then indicate sensitivity to a certain treatment. And recently also, there has been uh, more and more attention going into functional testing. So this means that we take the tumor out from the patient and we test the drugs directly on those cells, on the, on the cancer cells. So those are some of like general areas of things that we can use for personalizing the, the treatments. Wow, the functional testing sounds especially amazing. I have to say, if you can uh, take the, is it like a biopsy, I presume, and then you test the different drugs on like a dish or... 
Yeah, they, yeah, there are different different methods that have arised. So the traditional way is to just take the tumor cells, put them on the dish, and then shoot them with hundreds and hundreds of different cancer uh, different cancer treatments and see which ones are the ones that are most efficient. And the newest technologies that are are arising are these uh, organoids, the so-called mini tumors. So we can take the tumor cells from the patient and grow them as individual like mini tumors and really investigate them in detail under the microscope and see how they respond to the treatments. And these organoids can also be used for um, investigating immunotherapies. So immunotherapies are the recent also have been really successful in the treatment of many, many cancers. And the basic idea behind that is that the patient's own immune cells are harnessed to attack the tumor. And so, so these immunotherapies are, are also um, being investigated whether we can use this functional testing and organoids uh, to identify which of the patients would respond to these treatments. This is all very interesting and it's very impressive uh, for me who I'm not familiar with cancer research and, and all this progress and the different uh, methods that exist. Um, and you mentioned quite a few techniques. Um, for example, you mentioned biomarkers. And uh, although I understand about a bit about genetic testing and you explain a bit more about the functional testing and immu immunotherapy, I feel like biomarkers uh, is not still very clear to me. So maybe is there an easy way with some metaphor to explain to our audience what exactly is a biomarker and why it is important for personalized cancer care? Yeah, and that's a great question. I think that um, one of the easiest ways is to is to explain that we like we take the tumor um, and there we find a feature in the tumor, whether it be staining uh, or existence of some some certain immune cells or some certain different kinds of cells, or if even genetic mutation, an aberration that is found in the particular tumor and not in all of them. And that's, that's a biomarker that separates this, this tumor from the others um, and indicates that these patients might respond better to a certain treatment. Um, and this, of course, I mean, the biomarker research is really like really difficult and you need huge um, patient cohorts, prospective validation. So typically biomarkers are really difficult to establish in the clinics, but when they are established, then they bring a lot of benefits to the patients and, and, and to the treatment. Yeah. So essentially it can indicate to you that uh, this cancer cell will have like a sensitivity and you can identify that sensitivity and that's uh, what you mentioned as a biomarker and, yeah. and, and then you can directly target uh, based on, on that uh, yeah. knowledge. And sometimes, even though it's people don't usually consider it, but sometimes it's even more important to identify which of the patients will not respond to the treatment. So, so giving these kind of expensive targeted treatments, which are not non-toxic, so they have toxicities, it's very important to, if we can use a biomarker to identify those patients that will most likely not respond to a therapy. 
so it can be used in a in kind kind of both ways. That sounds really interesting. And um, I was actually wondering, are all of these processes already kind of applied in the clinic, or are they still, or are many of them still um, like at a research level? Kind of both. So some of the biomarkers, some of the genetic tests are are already routinely used in the clinics. For example, for ovarian cancer patients, we do genetic testing on on all of all of the patients who are newly diagnosed. And uh, for biomarker testing, we do use some other other uh, features as well from the tumors. Functional testing has not yet entered the clinic, has not yet entered the clinical use. There have been really good results on functional testing in other cancers, such as hematologic cancers. But I think there's still there's research to be done on the role of functional testing in, in gynecologic cancers. So um, we are routinely using genetic testing to identify patients. And nowadays there are luckily some targeted treatments that we can offer to patients who have a certain genetic alteration in the tumor. And also um, these other biomarkers, they are entering the clinics as the, the new drugs become available. So, so one, one thing that has uh, hindered us from using personalized medicine or personalized targeted treatments is the access to new drugs and therapies. But now as they are becoming approved and also uh, re- reimbursed by our um, reimbursement system in Finland, then we can use, we, can, we will test for the biomarkers and we can use those biomarkers to design the treatments for the patients. You mentioned something interesting with reimbursed. Uh, is it uh, namely to apply funding for research for cancer medication, or is it about the patients and their accessibility to those uh, treatments? Yeah, so it's it's about the patients. So in Finland, we have we are very lucky to have this that we get the re- drugs reimbursed by by the society, uh, but the, there is a timeline for for getting the reimbursements in place and nowadays there are uh, a lot of obstacles um, especially regarding uh, combination treatments so some combination treatments are much widely more widely used internationally but but in Finland um, we don't have necessarily the, the reimbursements in place for certain drugs and drug combinations Okay, so some things are available and people can get the treatment and get reimbursed for it. So it's no cost to the patient. But for some other medication, which, which could be helpful, this has not yet arrived in Finland as yeah. an option to get the medication being reimbursed. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned all these different methods and uh, with emphasis also on the different drugs that exist. And uh, here and there, you did mention some benefits uh, on each method. But are there any further benefits uh, and challenges as well with respect to the um, cancer patient treatment and uh, in particular with molecular profiling of tumors? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So in gynecologic cancers um, and also in other tumor types, uh, there have been huge benefits for these targeted treatments. I know at, at least in hematologic cancers, these genetic tests have really revolutionized the treatments. But from ovarian cancer, which I know the best, is the 
is the real uh, success story of PARP inhibitors. Uh, so, for example, not more than five years ago, when pa patients did not get access to these targeted treatments, it was common that like in five years, only 40% or so of the patients are alive. So the prognosis is really poor. But now when we have a genetic test that can, we can identify a, a certain mutation in the, in the tumor, and then we can treat the patient. And this is actually already reimbursed in Finland, which is, it's great. And we can treat the patient with a PARP inhibitor, especially targeting that genetic mutation we can get a really long survival. And at five years, more than 50% of the patients were disease-free. And in the cancer care, this means that the patients are potentially cured. And this is really revolutionary since the at the diagnosis, the patients have highly metastatic advanced ovarian cancer. And with these targeted treatments, we can actually probably cure a really large percentage of these women. So, so it's so really impressive. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, it also sounds like very promising. Yeah. Indeed. And in such a like short or like relatively short amount of time as well, the progress that has been made is really yeah. impressive and gives a lot of hope, I think, as well. Yeah. Yeah. We are learning more and more about how these cancers sh should be treated. And it's not one drug, but it's a combination at least in ovarian cancer, it's combination of surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and then maintenance treatment with these new targeted treatments. So that has been the key to success. Yeah. We have been discussing uh, all these very interesting aspects of uh, personalized cancer care and all the different techniques and, and paths uh, that you can take. Um, but to me, that sounds a little bit like this is the, the case in theory, but what happens in practice? So from your experience, do you have any example that you can give on how all these are then finally applied to actual actual humans in, in the clinics? Yeah, no, I, that's that's great, great question. Um, like at the moment, I think we are already there uh, for some uh, ovarian cancer patients, for example. So we have, for example, in the ideal, in the situation where we are at the moment, is that we, let's say we have a, a patient who is uh, typically in her 60s, advanced, highly advanced metastatic ovarian cancer but she's in a good, good shape so we can do optimal surgery and we get all the tumor out. And that even nowadays happens in a large proportion of the patients. So we can do really like uh, optimal surgery. And then if, if she's fit enough to get full chemotherapy, we can kill all the remaining cancer cells. And then if we find the certain mutation, the biomarker, uh, genetic alteration in her tumor, then she can get reimbursed uh, for maintenance treatment for lasting up to two years uh, at the moment. And, and with that treatment, optimal treatment, these patients can be cured. So I think that's, that's where we are already at the moment. And, and we are like super excited about these, these new targeted drugs. And I think in the future, we will be able to more and more use immunotherapies also in this, in this fashion. So we might be able to identify the patients 
that really respond to immunotherapies and use them in the same way so that we can actually treat the patient in a tra traditional way with surgery and chemotherapy and then continue on a, on a maintenance treatment with a targeted drug and really keep the cancer away for a long time, even cure the patients. I am becoming a very curious because uh, from what I have heard, as I said, I don't have experience on the field. So all my knowledge comes from what I read and hear uh, on the internet and the news. And I was under the impression that uh, it quite often uh, may be the case that uh, um, uh, the cancer or the tumor uh, cells are removed by a surgery and then chemotherapy is applied but in a few years later, then that patient might develop cancer again. Is that really the case? And so is it like an idealized case that um, you remove the cancer cells, you apply chemotherapy and the patient is cured? Or is it possible that uh, the cancer can return? And what happens then with the personalized care that that person receives? Uh, do you mean in the, in the, in the setting of cancer relapse? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a that's a that's a dilemma of, of cancer. So, and it depends a lot on the cancer type. So, certain cancers uh, typically have this not kind of notorious tendency to come back and relapse, even after long, long periods of time. Like breast cancer might come back in in decade, and it depends. But I think in the ideal situation, we would be able to then biopsy that the relapsed tumor and again identify what's going on in the tumor do genetic testing biomarker testing and then tailor the treatments according to the relapsed cancer so so it is tailored like it, the, the patient might not receive exactly the same treatment as the first time because the relapsed tumor might require a different approach yeah that's that's exactly the case so typically the the tumors evolve and the relapsed cancers are more resistant to the current therapies or the previous therapies. So then we need to also be more alert and ready to like test the, the tumor and try to tailor the treatment uh, more carefully according to the alterations. Yep. I, I also had a question about the genetic testing. Um, does that also include um, if someone has like a genetic predisposition for a certain type of cancer? Or is it more looking at like the overall tumor, like what uh, mutations there are in it? So it's, it's both. Of course, first of all, we are treating the patient and we are trying to figure out what's the best treatment for, for each patient. Uh, but then secondly, we are always testing whether the alteration, if we find an alteration, we are testing whether that exists also in the, in the germline, meaning like it could be uh, inherited or it can be, it can predispose to cancer. And also that is super relevant for the relatives of the patient because they might also be at risk of, of, the, of certain cancers. So we do for certain mutations, certain cancers, we definitely do that. And I think it is, it is super relevant. And yes, I've also heard of these cases, um, like of the news, I think celebrity cases, I guess are the most famous ones where people- Angelina the... Jolie. Yes, that's exactly the one who oh, she comes to mind, where people have like the preemptive uh, like surgery and kind of to make sure the cancer doesn't come in the first place. Yes. Is this is this very common? Uh, is this a common practice as well? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a common practice, although these inherited alterations are not that common. Luckily, they are quite rare. So it's I think it's less than 10% of patients with ovarian cancer would have this genetic predisposition. No, so that is super relevant because we can prevent cancer from, from happening in these, these patients uh, by prophylactic surgeries. Of, of course, it's not... A desired situation, but I think in severe cancers, it's more in, like encouraging to do surgery than just wait to see for a lethal cancer. Yeah, so definitely. So in, in this case, if I understand right, you it's like you had a relative, like a parent, a mother in the case of ovarian cancer or a grandmother who had developed cancer. And then there is the fear that you might have a genetic disposition and then you go and get checked. Or are there specific types of ovarian cancer that are associated to genetic uh, preconditioning? And therefore, uh, if uh, you have an ancestor who developed a particular type of cancer, then it's expected that you might carry a gene. And therefore, you go through the procedure you said of um, taking uh, surgery in advance to, to ensure that you will not develop uh, cancer. So how exactly does it work? Uh, how do we find out if someone has a genetic disposition? Yeah, it's, it's in two ways. So first, there is uh, the patient. If we, we have a patient and we do the, our routine genetic testing, and then we find, okay, this is a mutation that could be uh, inherited, and it could be, um, it could be relevant for the relatives as well, then we can advise the patient to go for genetic uh, counseling. And then the patient can decide to inform the family and, and so on. So we can kind of go from the, the case, so-called uh, the, the cancer case and, and see and make sure that the relatives get tested as well. And then they have the opportunity to choose prophylactic surgeries. The other way around is, is that if there is a lot of cancer in the family, but perhaps the grandmother or your own mother has already passed away and we cannot access the samples or the blood or the, the information on those. Then if there's a strong family history of cancer, you can also get tested uh, by seeing a genetic uh, counsel or, or a doctor. And then, and then if there is a positive test, on the positive, positive result on the genetic testing, then of course you can be offered prophylactic surgeries. And, but luckily you mentioned that these are not so common forms of cancer, the inherited ones, was it 10%? Or? Yeah, so, so for ovarian cancer, it's less than 10%, maybe in Finland, yeah, something like this. And also for other cancer types, is quite rare. Okay, well, that's reassuring at least. So with the environment around you, you can, and your lifestyle and habits, you can influence your yes, uh, yeah. these things. Yeah. Maybe to, to to make the conversation a bit lighter because it has yes. become uh, yes. very heavy. I yes. can say that it's uh, less than the chances of taking funding for doing research in general around the world. So and 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 indeed the, the percentages for getting funding are very low. So mm -hmm. um, it, and that percentage for getting this preconditioned uh, genetic uh, genetically preconditioned cancer is is even lower. So that's yes. uh, beyond. Uh, uh, hopeful uh, for me. Can I ask something before uh, we continue um, to the next topic, but it's related to what we were discussing now. Do you think 
that this percentage of pre genetic preconditioning um, has been de decreasing towards the year so that this gene is fading away from the human population or do you think that it's there and it, it is stable like the percentage has remained the same over the past few decades? I think in general it is remaining the same. There are some differences between populations uh, traditionally in Finland, we've had quite low percentage because Finnish genes are quite like we are quite kind of isolated population. But there's um, more the prevalence is higher in other countries such as Russia or Estonia. And I guess as people are moving and, and kind of um, mixing, the genes are mixing more and more, I guess it's going to be more kind of evenly distributed. I wouldn't say it's going to change or decrease. What is happening is that we are identifying more and more genes that are related with this risk. So with research, we have been there. There's been new findings, uh, new genes that we can now identify from the testing and then kind of give, give more advice to the to the patients and to the families. So that is that is more like increasing, I guess, the awareness and also in, in a way the prevalence of these genetic preconditions. Right. So if I understand right, it's not that the situation is getting worse or better in terms of the presence of these genes, is that in the past we didn't know. And as the time progresses and research is uh, being conducted, like genetic analysis, then we identify more and more of them. So uh, we become more aware of all the possible cases and therefore easier to protect people who might that's, fall in that category. Yeah, that's correct. And also, I think patients are more aware and they are getting into genetic testing and counseling. So it's like both ways. And I think it's great that the awareness and the, and the testing is, gets more common. I also remember in some lecture in biochemistry back in my undergrad days, uh, the lecturer mentioned that in certain countries and regions, certain types of cancer are more common and like, I guess, due to the environment and the the diets that people have and how it differs. Is there any difference in how cancer care is uh, personalized in different regions of the world, perhaps given that certain cancers are more, or perhaps even prevented, given that some uh, cancers are more common in different regions? Yeah, that's, that, that is probably the case. Um, I think I would say still that the healthcare system and the access to new therapies, the access to new drugs, the access to genetic testing or biomarker testing is a more a stronger influencer in this respect. So there are kind of slight slight differences between incidents of different cancer, but I think still the healthcare system and the guidelines are the ones that are more uh, defining how we do, how we treat the patients, how we can, what treatments are available. Um, I think also research is a bit, of course, research and research funding can be a little bit kind of targeted in those countries that have high incidence of certain cancers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So we discussed um, that we've come pretty far with personalized cancer care and that there really has been this visible improvement in prognosis. Um, ever since it was introduced in the last decade or so. And I was wondering about the future prospects uh, in personalized care. And that's where we all want to go. And also with ICANN, we want to kind of shape the future. And as the research kind of goes forward, 
I would really like to see these things be more a clinical routine and available for each patient, regardless of, you know, hospital district or city. And also, as we learn more, we need to employ these new technologies and have them established in the hospitals. And one thing is also um, promoting education. Uh, so we need more education on, on these topics for the healthcare professionals, but also I think for the patients for, and for citizens to be aware, aware of these things and to, dis, to be able to discuss the options, like the treatments options with, with the doctor. And I think the main kind of future prospect that I would like to see is to, to actually have more resources, both, both for the testing and then, then for the drugs. So, so getting access to, to new drugs that we, which we can use then for the right patients, that's, that's I think, the key. All that you mentioned uh, sounds like music to my ears because you touched the most important things that we also need to advocate as scientists today. First one is uh, we need to open and make affordable and uh, available our knowledge based on research and our technology to everybody and uh, not just leave it for the privileged side of the world. Second of all, to have the data open from different research units because uh, there are different groups around the globe. They're working individually but it's important to collaborate and share the knowledge and the information and be able to to double confirm and above all get the patients included and those who directly interact with them which are the doctors the practitioners and this is so important because so far society has been a little bit detached uh, from science we have all, all these things that immediately affect Uh, the general public. And it's so important to get the general public involved. And I'm so happy that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think even even these PARP inhibitors, which are targeted genetically derived, like targeted therapy, it's everyday treatment in the clinics. But we still have huge gaps in knowledge and in transferring information to other like all the like everywhere in Finland and also to the patients what does it mean to be on this drug what does it mean that you have to take this pill every day and and so on so no it's so important because the more the people uh get to know and understand the more probable it is that they uh, will not be afraid and uh, it's always good to speak to emotion and put it in perspective to their problems, which I think the detachment of science and society comes in. And with respect to the patients, it's all this uncertainty. Okay, so if I take that treatment, what happens with me? And the only source for them to get that information, it's the doctor they immediately interact with. So if doctors are uh, have access to all the knowledge and all the modern technology, and uh, they can convey that information to the patients and get them involved, it will help so much uh, building the confidence and the relationship because in case of such severe medical conditions, uh, it's your doctor and your scientist that you should be able to trust and, yes. and communicate perfectly with. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and I think here we can also learn a lot from other uh, countries, societies, other systems, this more open, informed Discussion is more common, for example, in the US. Uh, I worked for two years in Boston and there I saw how the physicians and, and patients are kind of 
together deciding on what is the best treatments for, for each patient. And I, I saw it happening in, in real, real life. And I would like to see that more happening also here in Finland. Of course, then it goes to the resources, the resources part again, but I, I still do hope that these personalized or targeted treatments will still bring more benefits and more economical saves, savings to society because we can also not give the, the treatments that are not effective for, the, for those patients and we can really target the treatments. For sure. And definitely, I think um, like uh, this kind of discussing between the doctor and the patient, I found that really interesting. And kind of, I think when the patient trusts that they're in good hands and they, you know, they understand why this one pill a day, for example, then they're also more likely to take that pill a day, making it much more effective, like yeah. you said. Too. Yeah. And it's really underlining the importance of science and medical communication. Also. Yeah. Yeah. And also like they, none of these drugs are without side effects so they they do have side effects and also that those are important to uh, communicate with the patients and sometimes it might be still the wisest decision for the patient to refrain from any therapy at some point there might just be it's better to move on and, and try to live your life as normally as possible um, but that is also a, a, a decision that needs to be discussed at some points and one thing I can add here is like also in, in the first episode uh, where uh, we discussed uh, in actually in the first episode of this mini series, I have to be very, very specified, this mini series on cancer research we are doing in collaboration with ICANN, uh, we interviewed uh, Tommy Makela. And uh, uh, during the interview, like uh, he also mentioned that it's also another aspect that's important of getting patients involved because uh, he said that they can also decide what happens to the sample they give to a hospital and how that can then uh, be uh, openly accessible by different research groups. And therefore, um, uh, they also play a role in the yeah. research that's happening today. And uh, if you feel involved as a, as a citizen in, in the research to, to tackle a very big problem of our society, which is cancer, then it's really important to know and to have that possibility. Yeah, that's very important. And that's kind of where all this comes from and what kind of it goal goes down to that we learn and learn more about the tumors. We learn more about the cancers and then also we, we want to know what happened to the patients with cancer. And I think the biobanks that have been built in, in Finland for this purpose are really a huge valuable resource for this research. And we can actually find out what happened to the patients in like Finnish patients, because also Finnish genes are unique. So we need to actually really um, investigate Finnish Finnish cancer patients to know what is best for Finnish Finnish people. So it's it's really important for for to educate and to openly discuss what is happening to the samples. For example, if you give a biobank consent. So, but that's that's really critical. That's the key for all the success and all the research we can do. Yes, and I feel that really makes takes the personalized medicine to the next level because it's really tailored to the you know the person's you know, needs and the treatment works for helping uh, treat their cancer. 
but then also the it also fits their lifestyle in a way and they have the informed consent as yeah. well that's really yes. important yep and that actually um i think really nicely wraps or kind of brings us towards the end of the episode but before we do end what is the most important message that you'd like our audience to take away from today's episode yeah i mean to me personalized treatments so uh, they are here and they are here to stay and we need the research to develop them further and i think they should be routine for every patient with cancer and also this personalized care should really kind of holistically consider the whole patient and be discussed with the patient and not only focus on the medical facts or the kind of standard of care guidelines but really individually discuss the options with the patients and as as a researcher i really would like to kind of emphasize that as we learn more and more i think it's going to be much more improved in the future so so there is like a huge improvements to be made and a lot of hope hope for the future thank you that is a very nice very hopeful message to wrap up this episode and thank you very much anina for your time and for this very very interesting conversation um and uh yeah good uh goodbye to you all thank you this If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.